Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Listeners to the show might recall an episode that Jeremy and I taped back in November of last year with a Shanghai-based clinical psychologist named George Hu. I really enjoyed that, and apparently many of you listeners did too, to judge from some of the very kind emails we got after that show dropped. Well, as you are all doubtless aware, a lot has changed in Shanghai since we spoke six months ago. Shanghai has had to endure one of the longest, strictest, and least competently administered lockdowns that China has faced since the initial outbreak of COVID in Wuhan in late 2019. It would be surprising if that ordeal hadn't made an impact on the mental health of Shanghai residents. And I should hasten to add that Shanghai isn't the only Chinese city to experience lockdowns since the current wave of Omicron has started spreading in in China. Over 40 cities in China as of May 10th were in either full or partial lockdown or had implemented some kind of district control measures. This according to my colleague Nandini Venkata, who told me that on the Caixin Seneca business brief, which she co-produces with me. So I've asked George to join me again from Shanghai to talk about how the pandemic and the lockdown are affecting people in China. Dr. George Hu is a clinical psychologist and president of the Shanghai International Mental Health Association. George leads the United Family Mental Health Network in China and practices at United Family Hospital's Pudong Hospital down there in Shanghai. George, welcome back to Seneca and great to see you. Thank you. It's so good to be back. Thank you for having me, especially during such a unique time like we're that we're in. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. So, George, before we get started, let me thank you, first of all, for the excellent recommendation that you made last time, the book Crazy Like Us by Ethan Waters. I actually read it like straight away after talking to you, and a lot of the issues related to culture and psychology that we touched on last time. While we're focusing in this episode on the specific circumstances of lockdown, we'll still touch on some of this stuff, and I only wish I had read that thing before I had spoken to you last time. <laughs> it's a great book. Anyway, George, maybe let's start off with, with your own family's situation there in Shanghai. When did you guys get locked down and for how long? And were you able to, you know, get basic supplies? Yeah, like so um, we have been actually locked down, my family and I, since mid-March. Um, as you know, Shanghai started a citywide lockdown in two phases on March 28th. That was supposed to be for four days for the district of Pudong on March 28th. And then uh, Pudong was supposed to lift its lockdown and Puxi on the other side of the river was supposed to go into lockdown on April 1st for another four days. And then that was supposed to be the end of it. But as you know, Shanghai was actually going through a series of rolling lockdowns even before March 28th, uh, in which different compounds or Xiaochus as we call them, um, we're going into lockdown in a rolling fashion in order to test the whole city. So we've actually been in lockdown since mid-March. Uh, so it's been a couple of months already for our family. 
Wow. My God. Today is uh, May 17th or the 18th for you all yes. over there. So yeah, it's already been two yes. full months. Yes, it's been two full months. And to answer your question about were we able to get supplies, you know, for the first week or two, it was shaky. I got to say for the first week or two, um, you know, it was new. The lockdown was new. People were getting used to these tango or group buys, um, as we call them. Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. were not adequately prepared because it was, as you know, supposed to be a four-day lockdown uh, that got extended. And so many people prepared for four days um, and were not prepared sufficiently afterwards. And food deliveries were interrupted. The government or the neighborhood committees, or Jiwehue, as you call them, uh, had not come up with systems adequate for food delivery to all the households that they managed. So for the first couple of weeks, it was it was pretty shaky. Now, I think it's largely stabilized for the majority of the population as we've gotten used to the group buy systems, as we've gotten used to using different platforms to order food, and as some suppliers have been able to open up and, and make more deliveries, uh, things have gotten a little bit better. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good to know. I mean, Shanghai is now claiming that they've basically squashed any community transmission of COVID-19 in 16 major districts of, of Shanghai. Are we pretty confident that this means a broad reopening pretty soon? I mean, <laughs> I hear about sporadic openings of businesses and things like that. How's it over there in Pudong? You, you know, I, you, your guess is as good as mine on that. Every day there's new rumors about things that, you know, things that will open, uh, you know, but honestly, uh, in terms of ourselves and my family in the neighborhood that we live in, we haven't seen any real change. I've been privileged enough to be able to come to and from work every day as a healthcare worker. So I'm actually sitting in my office right now, having commuted over here from home, but many have not been able to do that. And many have had to either work from home or as we here in the hospital, um, up to 200 staff members here are sleeping here every night in order to ensure that the hospital uh, can continue to run. I have noticed in my daily commute to and from work that blockades and road barriers uh, have been going up, new ones every day, which makes my morning commute route to work different every single time. Yeah, so I have noticed that. There are a mixture of opinions on what that means, but no real official announcement yet. Okay, well, it is in your capacity as a healthcare worker, and specifically as a mental healthcare worker, uh, that we really wanted to talk to you today. So uh, let's start with, you know, kind of a big picture. Give us a sense for how big the mental health problem that's been brought on by the pandemic and, and especially by the lockdowns really is. I mean, what do we know about the overall scale of how this has impacted people's mental health in, in Shanghai and in China? Do we have any good data on that? You know, we don't have great data on yet on this particular lockdown. Um, a lot of people are studying it and gathering data. Um, and some initial information right. and studies are trickling out now. But because this lockdown is so new, you know, and so different, actually, from other lockdowns, we don't have great data on it just yet. We do have data from lockdowns, uh, COVID lockdowns that were similar in some ways, different in others. We have data from lockdowns in the United States and, the, and in the West, and we have some data from lockdowns, uh, the lockdown in Wuhan in 2020, 
so we have some data from 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 previous situations, but we don't have great data from this one. So the the overall picture right now is hard to say. I think that'll change in the upcoming months. But we have a lot of anecdotal data. You know, we have a lot of anecdotal um, experiences yeah. from myself, my team, um, other mental health workers uh, in the city, right? Uh, that we speak to. So so we have some idea of the mental health impact of this quarantine, um, but the data is forthcoming. No, I fully understand that it's going to be anecdotal, but you are in the front lines, and that's why we're really interested in hearing what you have personally seen and uh, what you and your colleagues have been talking about in terms of the impact on mental health. Yeah, I mean, right now we see a pretty significant one. I got to say, we are two months into this into this lockdown so there's several layers uh, that myself and my colleagues have been observing um, as to the impact of the quarantine right now. One layer is definitely the exacerbation of any pre-existing conditions or symptoms that have already been there from before, right? Um, right? That have been worsened by the conditions associated with the lockdown. But also we're seeing um, a lot of other um, symptoms that were not there before, such as emotion regulation, what does that it, mean? It really just means people having much more difficult times controlling um, their emotions, particularly negative ones, uh-huh, including uh-huh. things like anger, hopelessness, sadness, despair. Even right, we're seeing much. We're seeing negative emotions much more easily triggered. Uh, we're seeing emotional difficulties, uh, relational difficulties, difficulties between couples, family members people that you live with being exacerbated and worsened uh, during this period. And I think we have to remember that for much of Shanghai and for really much of China in the modern era, you know, people have been accustomed to living at a certain level of Maslow's hierarchy. If we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as this pyramid, uh, where the more basic needs for food and water and, and warmth are at the bottom. And then the more, um, evolved needs, if you will, nearer to the top for meaning um, and self-actualization. Right. Uh, a lot of people here, most people here, I dare say, are used to living near the top of that hierarchy. Well, when the lockdown happened, all of a sudden, many of us were thrust into this situation in which it was hard to guarantee clean water or enough food, right? Even staple foods like rice and bread and flour, And, um, you know, as one of your previous guests mentioned, you know, that was very, very, people were very food insecure for, for, for a time. And that's threatening, you know, very threatening and can easily activate this fight, flight or freeze, um, situation and phenomenon in a person. Right. Uh, and so much of a person's then daily, weekly resources, emotionally and otherwise, are expended on making sure that they have enough food to eat and water to drink. I mean, that's got to trigger some cultural memory uh, along among some people. I mean, we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, insecurity during the Great Famine and the Cultural Revolution. I mean, that's got to absolutely, absolutely. And and I think that research will 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 still need to 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 play this out um, a little bit. But you're exactly right in that this harkens back to an era that China has not seen for a time. But it does bring up questions, too. I had mentioned um, some of the research coming out of Wuhan two years ago in 2020. 
you know, and um, some of the psychological and mental health effects of that quarantine, which was similarly harsh. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, this quarantine for many of your listeners is pretty harsh and different from a lot of quarantines in the West in that uh, most people are not allowed outside of their homes, much less out of their compounds, right? So if a compound has any positive cases or any close contacts, it's very likely that the residents of that compound are not even allowed outside of their housing unit, outside of their homes, right? Some lucky ones may be able to come out of their home to take out the trash or to get a um, PCR test or an antigen test or something every day. Um, But for most people, they're not even allowed outside of their home. So this is a very stringent lockdown that was different from the West. It was similar to the lockdown in Wuhan in 2020. But uh, the, the residents of Wuhan in 2020 had available to them, and, I, and, and I'm not trying to discount the significant suffering that the residents of Wuhan went through um, and continue in some way to feel the effects of uh, even today. But the residents of Wuhan in 2020 had a way to cognitively organize or to make sense of the lockdown, if you will. You know, That's it was right. Wuhan. It was 2020. Um, yeah. As harsh as the lockdown was they could make sense of it in some way. And as we spoke of before last fall, the ability to make sense of your circumstances has an impact on your resilience, on the development, if any, of symptomology after that, um, on the mental health impact or psychological impact of those circumstances. And here now, fast forward to 2022 in Shanghai, you know, it can be argued that many residents of Shanghai two years later don't have the same ability or or don't have the availability of an of a way to organize or to make sense of the severity of this lockdown, you, which is very difficult psychologically. That that makes just a ton of sense. It's a very compelling argument. Yeah, of course, if you're in Wuhan, I mean you have you shoulder this responsibility, you understand that you're sacrificing for something much bigger and it's 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 very much life and death. I, I know and I can I can empathize with that entirely. Whereas, you know, suddenly yeah. in Shanghai, the wealthiest and most developed city in, in the country, they have a sort of almost a sense of immunity, of sort of invulnerability and, and yeah. Suddenly they're facing things that they haven't seen in, in many, many decades. It's very true. It's very true. And like I said, people here are used to living at that very top of Maslow's, of Maslow's hierarchy, hierarchy of yeah, needs. Yeah. yeah self-actualized Shanghainese. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so a situation like this can be extremely, extremely discombobulating and threatening, right, mm-hmm. to the ego or to the sense of an integrated self. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, that has profound, that can have profound mental health impacts combined with the fact that, um, you know, not only are, are people here locked down, but many have had to continue to work right, uh, right. remotely many have had to figure out a way to homeschool or to provide uh, online schooling uh, or to and, you know reinforce online schooling for their children all while needing to be food insecure water insecure so the tax the, the tax and the and on the resources are are pretty pretty significant emotionally so i want to talk about uh, education obviously that was one of the huge issues that came out of our comparably much easier stay-at-home experience, and you know, but you know, we still talk about it a lot. And I, I have two kids, and they were in high school during 
uh, they had you know a terrible terrible time of it. it of course i was you know they were old enough that they could take care of themselves and I, I didn't have to organize daycare or anything like that my wife doesn't my wife doesn't work so but still it was it was uh, pretty pretty tough for a lot of a lot of younger kids and they've certainly suffered the impact but before we get to that when we spoke last time we talked quite a bit about how mental health is still stigmatized in a lot of china that was changing. I mean, obviously, we talked about how much, how far it had come, but have the lockdowns in some way, I mean, I'm maybe straining for a silver lining here, but have they at least increased acceptance among people or awareness of mental health issues, of loneliness, of, of, of things like that, of the, this feeling of isolation? I mean, I got to think that at least there's more sympathy for that. Now. Yes. I, I will say that anecdotally among myself, my colleagues, that is something that we have observed that the conversation mm. socially uh, has, has, has gone to mental health a lot more frequently during this lockdown, that people are, are feeling less stigmatized to discuss the emotional and relational <laughs> difficulties that, that they're experiencing during this time. And you can see that on social media. Uh, you can see that in conversations with people in Shanghai. Uh, people are, are, are more freely discussing mental health topics, and that's really, really good. It's a really good sign. I hope that that continues. I hope that that's not just limited to mental health around the lockdown uh, or mental health around the pandemic. I hope that that conversation expands. But 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 I will say that that is a significant silver lining that 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 I appreciate as well. That's great. I I, I gotta wonder though. I mean, have Chinese citizens? I, I I've seen examples of this, but I was just wondering whether this is. Uh, these these are you know viral on social media only because they're exceptional or because they're the rule. But it seems like there are a lot of of community coping strategies now for loneliness. Uh, these these very clever ways to do group activities remotely or you know shouting out windows and stuff like that. What can we learn from the way that Chinese people have responded? Because it 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 does seem like there's kind of solidarity among people um, all going through this together. Uh, kind of fellow feeling, which is just another maybe a silver lining. Of it. You know, I, 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 that really resonates with me as well. And I think that there is, I think that Chinese people are nothing if resilient, you know, they are, I, I think as a whole, and, and I'm not trying to dismiss the significant difficulties that many people are having during this lockdown because they are significant. But on the other hand, there are a lot of stories of people banding together and people having to fill in the gaps for each other. Right, because this lockdown happened so suddenly. It happened just days after Shanghai announced that there would be no citywide lockdown. Right. So people were not prepared for it adequately. I think uh, your one of your previous guests discussed how the systems, the, the the sort of infrastructure, was not prepared for it adequately, and so people have had to fill in the gaps a lot for their neighbors and come together and provide for each other, not only in terms of food and water and provisions. But also emotionally and socially, you know, there are so many stories and pictures of people being very creative with their uh, daily PCR tests, for example, mm -hmm. and really utilizing those times to to socialize, to get exercise, to 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 have some variety in their day. People dressing up in costumes and and dressing up in in, in formal attire because it's such a significant outing, you know, <laughs> for them. So I think people are utilizing and their resilience in, in very creative ways. And so that's a, that's a very good thing. Um, but I think that's not to discount the fact that there are significant uh, mental health consequences to 
to a lockdown that really is not, um, that pushes against a lot of our natural instincts as human beings. Yeah. Right. Um, our natural instincts to agency and socialization, for example. Um, so, so yes, there is a silver line. So George, let's talk about the very young and then talk about the very old. And so children, we talked a little bit about education just now, but I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I can only just begin to imagine what it's been like for young people in China. They're so focused on early education. They're so focused on gaokao preparedness. And this this disruption must be really kind of, well, I mean, a gigantic dislocation for them. It's got to cause quite a bit of, of distress. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and we're talking at sort of like two spectrums, or you just brought up two spectrum, two two opposite ends of sort of the childhood spectrum here. On the one end, you have the very young, right, children who are toddlers and and in early early childhood education or ECE, you know, preschool and and, and things like that. And then you have the other end, the older adolescents who are preparing for the Gaokao, that as you may know has been delayed here in Shanghai and also in all of China right. due to the the lockdown situation. Um, and so there is a lot of gaokao distress and what that will mean for for an entire generation of students who have been preparing for years and years uh, for this one examination. So there's significant amount of distress there. There's a significant amount of worry there. There are a lot of questions that are unanswered. And that is um, that insecurity is actually the most distressing from the mental health perspective. I can right? imagine. Yeah, if if we have answers or if we know, like if we even think about the grief process, right? If I could draw an analogy from the grief process, people who have lost a loved one, that is horrible and, and very, very difficult to deal with. But you have a secure base. You know your loved one has been deceased and that this is a grief process and an adjustment process. Compare that to people who perhaps have a kidnapped relative or a kidnapped child and they don't know. Right. Their psyche is uncertain about what they should do. Is this a grief process? Is this celebration? Should I hold out hope? And that's a lot more insecure for that person. Right, no closure. No closure, and it's much more distressing to the psyche. So I don't wanna compare, but it is analogous in some way that uh, a lot of children here, young people with um, underdeveloped executive functioning, uh, underdeveloped resources and resilience, you know, they, they are very insecure about what this lockdown means for their future, especially if they're preparing for the Gaokao. Now flip to the other end, and you have children who are in the early childhood phase of their educations. Um, they're in a phase of their education that is probably largely play-based, dependent on social interactions, dependent on the physical presence of a teacher and classmates and of, on a physical environment that doesn't translate well to the online setting. And for, right. for those children, their education has had to largely be dependent on their parents, you know, or on the people that they live with, because right. really their schools, and in fact, many private and international schools here have just straight up offered uh, refunds for their early, early childhood students, right. just because right. they know that, 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 the, that the education doesn't translate very well. So there's significant difficulties there for those children, but also difficulties for their parents and families, you yeah, know, in yeah. that those children have a, you know, they, they need a lot more resources to take care of, to educate, to keep alive, you know, uh, that their parents may not have a whole lot of right now. I totally understand. Yeah. 
So let's let's uh, go to the other end of the age, age spectrum and talk about the aged in China. First of all, I mean, there's a lot of, of, of talk. I mean, I don't know the numbers. I don't think anyone has ever shown me uh, clear numbers. But there seems to be a consensus that the rates of vaccination among the elderly in China are quite low, relatively low. I don't know if you've seen numbers about, say, you know, the percentage of people aged 65 or older who have had, you know, a full vaccination course. I've seen some. I've seen some. They are lower than the general population. Yes, that is true. Okay, because it's like 89% for across the population. Yes. I've heard it's only as low as like 60 or 65% for the elderly. Or, or Yeah, I've seen 65, about 65% okay. for okay. the elderly. So are, are public health officials making this a priority now? Are they, are they really pushing for... I mean, that seems like a no-brainer to me, that they have this massive state capacity. Why not use it to sort of compel the aged to, to be vaccinated? Well, absolutely. I think that that is definitely uh, the way to go from the public health perspective. You right. know, um, I my, I would have to defer to, to my colleagues in public health for this, but I, I definitely feel that that is the situation or, and the direction to move in. I will say that right now during the lockdown, it is very difficult to get out of your compound and, and most of the vaccination centers um, are closed. So huh. it is very difficult right now to to get a vaccine, if, even if you wanted to. That's yeah, that's that's really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Chinese people, as we all know, they pride themselves on filial piety and respect for the elderly. Yeah. And since the overwhelming majority of deaths and hospitalizations that are arising from COVID are among the elderly, and I think it's clear to a lot of people that were the zero COVID policy to be suddenly relaxed the elderly population would bear the brunt of, of deaths and hospitalizations. Absolutely. I, I got to think this would change the way that Chinese think people think about zero COVID. This is something I've, I've encountered a lot talking to American friends. They're just absolutely f- puzzled why China doesn't give up zero COVID. And, and they, they settle on some bizarre explanations like, oh, you know, well, it's it must be that the the people who manufacture these tests are in cahoots with the so-and-so. And no, I, I think that's... A little far-fetched. And then, you know, other people who, who reach for sort of the authoritarian argument that says, well, they're, uh, they wanted to do this anyway. They wanted to control society more tightly anyway. And so now they're using this. As, and I, I, I just don't see anyone wrestling squarely with the fact that like a food ad university study recently said they estimate 1.6 million deaths if they relaxed zero COVID and mostly among the elderly. I, I got to think that you know, for the vast majority of Chinese, they still they they're aware of the 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 relatively low capacity to deal with you know a, a real tsunami. I mean, if 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 something like that were to happen, yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah, really you know, yeah. I mean, I, I I have a lot of thoughts on on this as well, living through this and 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 observing the impact of the mental health impact in particular, and and it's true. I think that coming out of this lockdown and as and as covid just as other pandemics you know move from a pandemic to an endemic phase you know this is something that 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 can be expected china in 2020 established this zero tolerance for covid policy which i don't think is necessarily a bad one you know in theory and i also think that it worked very well for china in 2020 and into 2021 you know, I right. think that it, it, it really did. And, and I and, and those around me here in Shanghai bore the benefit of that, you know, um, when 
when other parts of China went into a very strict lockdown um, in 2020. That zero tolerance for COVID policy allowed us here in Shanghai and in most of the rest of the country to live a near normal life. You know, we were never locked in our in our homes, and we could continue to to to, to travel domestically and, and 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 things like that. So that we we did benefit from that. But as we move into a different phase, as the virus itself shifts. You know, and as we move into a different phase of dealing with this, you know, I think the question bears to be asked: Is this um, still the strategy that works for China now? Right. And, right, and right. is this a strategy that is going to work for China and Shanghai going into the future? You know, and that's a big question that is 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 affecting people's sense of security here. Yeah, I think there seems to be some kind of consensus around that. M- most people understand that this is not going to work in the long term. But it's just how do we get to how do we get there without a lot of people dying, right? That that seems Yeah. To be- and, and and that's and, and that's the and, and that's the issue. And I will bring up because there there is a Chinese concept of of mianzi here, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, face or saving face, right? That I think has at least a, a, a partial uh, something to do with, with 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 what's happening here in that, you know, um, whenever we deal culturally um, with Chinese folks, right? And I myself am of Chinese descent, right? I'm an ABC, um, you know, and, and so so I know this from my own uh, background. You know, we have to do so in a way that allows um, face saving. allows a saving yeah. of face, right. yeah. And and it's just a fact of it's just a cultural factor here that 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 we need to deal with, but it's not as present for perhaps people from, from other parts of the world. And so I think that as China moves into the endemic phase of dealing with this virus, you know, it's struggling with that aspect, that cultural reality of Mianzi, right? With with taking care of its people. Right. And, and I don't want to say that Mianzi is the only factor. It's not, you know, it, it's not. But it's something to think about, yeah, especially from a psychological perspective. And especially at the political level. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of, you know, you have a lot of um, decision makers who are, you know, who are politicians, A, right? Uh, B, they're mostly men. Uh, you know, we're dealing with, we're, we're, we're dealing with, yeah, so we're dealing with egos. We're dealing with a lot of things. <laughs> so. We're dealing also with a very competitive international environment uh, where you know there, there's great power, yeah, competition. Yes, and 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 it's not lost even on non-politicians like myself. The geopolitical realities sure. that also impact decisions regarding COVID, public health decisions, right? Right. And and it pains those of us in in healthcare that political or geopolitical factors you know, would impact health and public health decisions. But it does, and it's a reality of, of, of the world that we live in. Sure, sure, sure. So have people in your profession been able to deliver mental health care services online with any effect? Has that been something you've been able to do at all? Or have you uh, tried to keep up the sort of in-person delivery of, of care? So we're lucky enough in, in, in many parts of Shanghai that we have been able to keep up with in-person care to an extent. If a patient uh, is able to uh, get, obtain permission to exit their compound, if they can get a right, mm-hmm. a, um, a travel, travel permit right, right. to travel the streets and to, to come to the hospital, and if they have a negative 
COVID tests within the last 48 hours, then yes, they can see us in person. Uh, for most people, though, that's probably inaccessible. So most services have gone online with the exception of assessments. Assessments, there is an online method to, to give assessments, but it's not the preferred method for, for most clinicians. And so most services have gone online. The difficulty, though, is a lot of psychiatric prescription services. Yeah, I was going to say. Which should be done face-to-face, yeah. And also mm. the delivery of medications. That has been um, severely impacted and interrupted. Not yeah. just psychiatric medications, but medications and treatments of all types, right? And that's been one of the things that have been very insecure for people is that if something happens to me medically and I need to get the get to the hospital or if I just have a, a chronic condition that I need medication for, perhaps it's not life-threatening with the proper interventions, but now I can't get my insulin or I can't get my blood pressure medication or I can't get my psychiatric medication. And what impact is that going to have on my health and on the health of my family and community? Uh, for us here at United Family, you know, uh, we have been privileged enough to, to to have hospital cars that can make deliveries of most medications. And for controlled medications that, that cannot travel in that way, our doctors, actually, myself included, have been making personal deliveries where we get into mm. our own cars and our own scooters and our own bicycles. And we deliver medications to the door of the compound for 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 our patients who 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 can't access them otherwise yeah that's that's uh that's dedication but uh inpatient programs definitely have been scaled back yes you've not been able to treat as many and and there have been i mean even outpatient treatments like therapy certainly have been impacted by this too oh oh for sure and and, you know entire outpatient clinics have been have been closed especially some of the higher risk ones such as dental and ent all elective surgeries have been have been stopped. So basically, most things that cannot be online and anything non-emergency really has been halted. So we focused so far mostly on the people who are you know who have been locked in. What about the people who are essential workers? The, the mm. people who are doing contact tracing, the delivery drivers, you know, the the dabais, you know, the the, yeah. the, the sanitation people, the byway people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How are they all holding up? I mean, how is how are the essential workers? Well, you are one, so I guess you don't. Yeah. How's your, your staff, your nurses, and things like that. Well, you know, there's different types of essential workers. I really consider myself very privileged in that I I have been able, like I said, to co- to go back and forth between my home and work. Right. But for for many of my colleagues, they have not been able to. Doctors, nurses, janitorial staff, front desk billing and cashiers and insurance liaisons, health insurance liaisons, they have not been able to go home because if they go home, then they face the possibility that they could not leave their compound to come back to work, which means that the hospital would would, would have a difficult time uh, keeping up. And so uh, many of them, like I said, have had to, to sleep in this hospital. A lot of folks have had to sleep wherever they work, factories, uh, the workers in the compound that I live in, the janitorial staff, the security staff, they've all had to sleep there and they have not gone home for months, wow. you know, and, and, and they have had to um, also be at the same time food insecure and do a lot more work, do a lot more work. Now the, the security staff, which were just really in charge of security before, now are in charge of all sorts of things, right? Liaising with 
the neighborhood committee. They're in charge of liaising with deliveries. They're in charge of disseminating and passing out deliveries. They're in charge of making sure that all of these things have come on time and that they call the residents and make sure they pick up the delivery of their frozen goods before it melts. I mean, there's just a lot more things and they have to do so wearing hazmat suits, yeah, right? Yeah. In, and the, and the, as the weather gets warmer here, um, you know, that's, that's... Like it's increasingly uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, it's interesting, right? Because, like I said, there's different levels of essential workers. And you have, for lack of a better way of putting it, you have the more privileged essential workers, perhaps like doctors and nurses and, and, and government officials. And then you have the essential workers who are migrant workers, who are the lot less privileged. And as you and I spoke about last time, you know, the way that you organize cognitively what's happening has an impact on the mental health sequelae or the mental consequences of those circumstances, right? And so it can be argued that um, for a lot of these less privileged essential workers, that their sense of agency at baseline, their sense of agency before the lockdown was already different from the more privileged essential workers, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. You know, sure. and it'd be interesting for, for my, my research colleague to drill down deeper into this a little bit, but it'd be interesting to know whether that has an effect on the psychological consequences of this lockdown. Yeah. I mean, it is a, it's a, it's a puzzle. If you're yeah. knocked down only one rung on the Maslow hierarchy, is yeah. it worse than being knocked down it, three rungs? Right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So, you know, as you said, citizens in Shanghai were, were told not to worry. There are no lockdowns coming. You know, we saw this, uh, you know, in the newspapers and suddenly there was, there were lockdowns. And we, we saw other cities learn from the, the sort of Shanghaiers ex experience with these promises made by local officials. Some Beijingers, for example, you know, irrespective of all the promises, uh, they're going out and panic buying. Um, how, how does living in this ongoing state of acute uncertainty where, you know, the government in regards to this particular issue, at least, is, is not trustworthy. Uh, how does this affect people's mental health? Well, you know, it's really interesting because for, for, for this aspect of it, I, I really would go, go back to research because there has been studies, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Brian Hall here outside of, uh, out of NYU Shanghai, he and his team um, have really looked into this and identified sort of the psychological typhoon eye effect, right? Hmm. That for the first few weeks of, of, of the lockdown after in 2020, for example, um, there was this typhoon eye effect where it really didn't have a very significant impact on mental health really at all until at least four weeks after, right? Where there was this delayed phenomenon um, that was identified. Other colleagues such as Professor Wang Yunhe out of uh, PKU, Peking University, have really identified communication and the governmental role and the stability that governmental communication, reliable governmental communication can really have on mental health outcomes. And so I really feel that research does bear the significant role that the government can have in communicating a message, clear messages. And while I understand that, this, that we're dealing with a virus, right? And so information yeah. may change and uh, information may look different from one day or one week to the next. It, I think it's really vitally important that the government send consistent and clear messages, even if the message is, this may change, 
or even if the message is we are not sure and we need to see how the numbers look before we make any decisions about when you will be let out, you know, for example. So I think that this lockdown really caught Shanghai in many ways off guard. There was also a shift, as some of your previous guests have discussed, right? A shift in power and, and control where, where really Beijing took over the lockdown arrangements over from the Shanghai city government a couple weeks in. And so um, that shift also had an effect on the amount of trust uh, that right. people have. And, and I remember, as I said, the personally, Shanghai or Pudong went into formal lockdown on March 28th, but our compound had been in lockdown for several days before that. And we were let out for, I think, eight hours from 9 p.m. on March 27th to 5 a.m. on March 28th. We were released in order to go and buy provisions and buy groceries. And so obviously all of our, <laughs> all the residents flooded the um, the neighborhood grocery stores. And I was standing, I remember standing in a two hour line to pay for my groceries at this tiny mom and pop uh, store. You know, my arms were full, you know, bags were hanging off my, my shoulder and my hands, you know, cause I was balancing a flat of eggs <laughs> oh on God. one hand, you know, and the lady in front of me was like, why are you buying so much? It's a four day lockdown. You know, it's a four-day lockdown. You don't need that much food. And in my mind, you know, I, I, I didn't I didn't say this, right? In my mind, I was like, wow, you know, my my sweet summer child, you know, you <laughs> you believe that this is, you know, that this is gonna be a four-day lockdown, you know. Um, you know, and lo and behold it wasn't. But I think that the reliability of government messages, the reliability of government messengers, you know, whether that is the Jiwei Hui or whether that the, the, that is other um, other governmental officials can really do a lot and play a role here in settling and in addressing the mental health concerns of of, of the populace. But it is I, I will say that you know for for many of the Chui Hui staff you know it, it's a very difficult position to be in, right? Yeah, um, they are they are at the front lines of facing angry and distressed residents while being essentially powerless. Yeah, right. And a lot of a lot of responsibilities they're ha they're having the shoulder. Yeah. Do do you think George that other cities around China are looking at, at what Shanghai is undergoing right now in terms of of the obvious uh, challenges of 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 providing mental health and are instituting different measures or additional measures to try to be able to deliver those services? I mean, if you were tasked with if you're in a city, you know, if you're a city in Zhengzhou, Henan, or, or in Luoyang or something, and, you know, you get to design a new mental health initiative, uh, what kinds of measures would you recommend, uh, and where do you think investment is most critical? Wow. Well, I would definitely uh, invest in healthcare and mental healthcare infrastructure, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure that adequate uh, systems are in place in the case of a lockdown that healthcare and mental health care can move forward uninterrupted. And that includes um, online services for psychotherapy, online services for medication and psychiatric consultations, reliable and safe methods of medication delivery, and also for follow-up care. 
you know, I think that this is really, really vitally important. And also online or, or, or adequate systems to manage those that need to be hospitalized, right? right? Because COVID obviously is not the only mental health or healthcare concern. These things go on and, and continue. And so, and that's something that, that, that I think that we still need to learn. Um, as China in, in, in China, and I think it's something too that China has the ability to do. China is quite technologically advanced. China, if nothing else, has the ability to make quick decisions and to implement those decisions. Yeah, that much vaunted state capacity. Yeah, right. yeah, it has quite a significant amount of state capacity that can be utilized to prepare. And I think that you know some early signs out of Beijing who which is also headed in this direction, I might add. Uh, you know, <laughs> some early signs out of Beijing show that, you know, they are taking a page from Shanghai's um, um, experience, uh, yeah. you know, uh, this year, which, which is good, which is good. But but this is something that I think a lot of cities here in China are looking at and realizing two things. A, we never want that for our city, but B, also that it's possible, that it's possible right. that even a city as, as, modern and as powerful for lack of a better word as shanghai can be shut down so completely right i think that is something that is quite that was shocking to a lot of people here in china you know in right, modern right, china right. right the sort of um post uh post-revolution china right the jolin ho or ling ling ho yeah, china yeah. i think that was shocking for a lot of people. i i gotta think that the quarantine centers are, are a place where there's going to be a lot of people in distress. Yeah. Uh, and and I wonder right now in Shanghai, are there mental health professionals that are being tasked to specifically to the quarantine centers? That feels like that's a place where they, they need to have people on staff there around the clock. Is that happening? It's interesting. I'm not actually completely sure that there are mental health uh, professionals that are tasked to service the quarantine centers. I actually am not. I'm not a personally aware of any. As mm. I as I work with people who are both in the quarantine center and also under threat of going to the quarantine center, it does seem to be that the threat of going to the quarantine center is much more distressing than the actual effects of the quarantine center itself. <laughs> oh God! Yeah. Uh, that having been said, not all quarantine centers were created equal. And there are some quarantine centers that are much, much more distressing and much, much more intense and, and unsanitary uh, than others. Um, so there are different levels of quarantine centers and quarantine hospitals. Um, um, so so I, I need to put that caveat there. So some people yeah. are quite distressed in the quarantine center, and, and I don't want to take away from that. But the threat, particularly in the early days of the lockdown, when um, it was uh, quite realistic, for example, that if your child tested positive, that you as a parent would be separated from your child, that your child right. would be quarantined, even a very young child, you know, as young as five or six, would be quarantined for weeks away from any adults that they knew. And that was very, very distressing, extremely distressing. And I include myself in that. In, in, in that group of people that were very concerned about that. Shanghai has since, um, you know, announced uh, earlier on in, in the lockdown that they would, um, that if parents were willing to sign a waiver form, that they would not be separated from their children, even if... Oh, I, I, yeah. 
I I wasn't even aware that that had happened. That's that seems reasonably like yeah yeah. So yeah, so I think like, that for, in, in, for for the most part that fear has been has been addressed. But but the quarantine center is not a pleasant place, and and a lot of people live in fear of going to the quarantine center, and actually live in fear of what would happen after they return from the quarantine center, right? And 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 as my as my psychological colleagues, my research colleagues have identified the stigma, the social stigma of COVID, the social stigma of having had COVID or having had gone to these these quarantine centers. And by the way, when you do, if you test positive and you go to the quarantine center, uh, people come in to your home and they spray everything down with the, with the, <laughs> yeah. with the bleach solution. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it, you know, probably your property is damaged and, and you're coming back to a situation. Uh, you know, a friend of mine lives in a compound where they have people coming back from the quarantine center every day and they're walking in through the gates and there's a person with a hazmat suit and a, ble a bleach sprayer basically spraying as they're walking. Right. And, and so the, the effects of that stigma too, of having had COVID or having had to go to a quarantine center is can be significant as well. That's been identified in research. And, and those effects range from, you know, increased anxiety, depression symptoms, loneliness and isolation, fear. Uh, you know, they can be significant. What strategies have you seen Chinese citizens develop to, to reduce loneliness and to maintain maintain that kind of sense of community during lockdowns? I mean, you talked about some of these the people who dress up. <laughs> uh, that, that's all really great. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of you know that that everything has moved online, and and for the most part, you know, for for many people who are privileged, um, you know, to 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 enough to have a job that can move online, so that they are not necessarily under threat of being fired or laid off. You know, I think that um, they have been able to really utilize um, the online resources um, uh, to, to, to address loneliness. But that, you know, the, it's a mixed bag with, with online resources and with social media in particular, right? It's a mixed bag because research does show, even early research from the March um, lockdown in 2022 lockdown in Shanghai, Earlier research does show that increased social media exposure does lead to increased psychological distress, right? I quote my friend Brian Hall again for an early study. Yeah. and uh, But at the same time, people have had to rely on online resources to work, have had to rely on WeChat to even order food, right? Every single time go uh, is on WeChat, you know? And so, um, but it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. It's the condition of our age. You know, we're, we're totally dependent on social media, even though we know that it's killing us. It is, it is. And, and you know, it, it, yeah. I will say too, that I think, I think that um, I, I, if I could be so bold as to make it a, a prediction that, that we will look, that a future generation will look upon us um, in the 21st century um, and, and our reliance on social media and our reliance on technology in the same way that we now look upon um, the the early 1900s and the late 1800s, where we sent children to factories, right? And, right. and we, we deem that as a society, as a society, we deem that that was appropriate, right? And now we look back upon it and they're shocked that we had no idea that the effects that that would have um, on, on children. And I think that we will look upon this time as well, right? Where we basically unleashed upon a generation of children um, you know, 
social media, uh, uh, all things online, you know, without really understanding its effects, um, its negative effects, right? I don't want to take away from some of the positive ways that, that these technologies have, 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 have impacted our society. Uh, but well, so so did those power looms. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, right? exactly. We industrialized as a world, right? right, right <laughs> but right, at the right. same time, there was a cost. cost? Yeah, there was a cost. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we're still understanding that cost. You know, even during a lockdown, right? We are we are seeing some of the cost, mental health wise, of um, so much social media exposure. You know, I wonder what yeah. cost that will that will what that will look like you know over the long run yeah we're seeing a lot of people who are included and a lot of people who are excluded from from treatment uh, for mental health disorders this whole transition to online psychiatric care that's happening in china it's yes it's a good thing but you know it's it's uneven yes and you bring up you brought up the elderly before right and 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 it right. impacts again you know all sorts of things absolutely impact the the, the certain levels of society more than they do others, right? The lower socioeconomic classes, the uh, the elderly who who are, who may not be as familiar with how to use these technologies, um, people who are poorer and may not just have have access or may not be in a job that allows them to constantly monitor WeChat, for example, uh, to buy That's food, right. and so um, you know it affects those those segments of the population, anything really affects those segments of the population much, much more. Dr. George Hugh, thank you so much for taking the time to offer us this fascinating perspective. It's always so great to talk to you. You're, you're so, uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how well you express yourself and how, how just familiar you are, you are with all of this. And, uh, wow. I mean, I, I'm, I feel for you. Uh, I think the, all of us, we, we wish you luck and, and to your family and all, to all your patients. Thank you. Uh, and, and hope that things get better in Shanghai soon. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And like I said, I, I count I count myself and, and my family as, as being one one of the privileged ones. So, um, yeah, you know, I feel feel very grateful. Yeah. I'm more privileged. <laughs> <laughs> not being, anyway, I do. I do wish I were in China, but not not in China. Yeah. Right now. yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go on to recommendations now. Uh, first, a real quick reminder that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like what we do with this show and the other shows in the Seneca Network, shows like the China and Africa Podcast and China Stories and the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, then by all means, uh, you know the 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 way to help us out is to subscribe to SubChina Access Newsletter. So yeah, uh, just check it out. It's a fantastic newsletter, and uh, there's there's lots to be learned from it. Jeremy and his team do an excellent job. Let's uh, go on to recommendations now. George, what do you have for us, man? Last time you gave me such a good one. Uh, well, I've got a I've got a different book now. Um, it's oh, called It's called How to Raise an Adult: Break Free of the Overparenting mm-hmm. Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. And maybe this speaks to the phase of life that I'm in right now. Uh, it's a book by Julie Lithcott Hames. Uh, who is a professor, I believe, at a Stanford University, um, and talking about the harmful effects of helicopter parenting and how to break free of that. And this is something that she wrote so insightfully from her own experience working with students uh, who were victims of, of this type of parenting and how to how to avoid that as a parent. And so this is something that I've really benefited from. Um, uh, from reading and that I recommend to all your readers who are parents or who are preparing to be parents 
uh, or who know parents. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. I was definitely a product of a free range upbringing, you know, just, uh, just as soon as we get home, just jump on the bikes and go exploring and riding off and just, yeah, I was a mix. I, I was sort of a hybrid, you know, helicopter at times, free range at others. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I got lucky in my, my generation. I, we've tried to free range yeah. our kids as much as possible. Uh, sometimes oh, they're good. weirdly resistant to it, but <laughs> great recommendation. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely read that. Uh, even though, I mean, I'm kind of done with parenting. Uh, my o- oldest, you know, she flies the nest this fall. She's off the college. Wow. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, you may just be transitioning to a different phase, you know, of parenting. Maybe. Yeah. 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 I I imagine that's probably the case. All right. Great. Great book recommendation. Uh, Mine is for a series of articles. I hope a lot of you have already read. Uh, They're written by Nicholas Confessori. It's a series in the New York Times all about Tucker Carlson. Uh, the series mm. is called American Nationalist. It's all about just the rise of and, and the shaping of, of, of the worldview of, of this of this guy. Uh, it's really especially important in the aftermath of this racist you know, Buffalo, New York supermarket mass shooting on May 14th. Um, we have to recognize that you know Tucker Carlson, who is just doing so much to mainstream the, the replacement theory, this guy has blood on his hands. I mean, this is mm. a vicious conspiracy theory that he's spreading and it is powering so much of the hate crime i mean he he may not use the direct uh you know anti-semitic or or anti-black rhetoric in it but he rolls right up to the edge and dog whistles the shit out of it so mm-hmm. uh, i think he's got blood on his hands he's really poisoning discourse in america and this this series is fantastic it's it's really good it's excellent journalism. i would give it a read thanks man yeah. george yeah. so good to talk to you uh let's so do it again. good to talk with you kaiser yeah, a real pleasure. And um, we'll um, certainly have you back on the show again in not too long because there's always a lot of, of fertile fertile ground to plow. Looking forward to it. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.